So we're entering Holy Week. This is the big week in the local church. This is the week that leads to the signature event of our faith, to the reason that we gather and worship every week. And it's a big deal, and it will culminate this coming Sunday. Don't miss it. Bring someone with you, grab a card, take it home, pass it on. So we're going to break from our series. We've been doing a series through what we call the books. We've been into the Hebrew scriptures for a bit here. We're taking a break from that to discuss of course, the cross on Friday coming up and the resurrection on Sunday coming up. But today, we're discussing the week that led into all those events. It begins today, the first of eight days. Today is known as Palm Sunday. Next Sunday, the resurrection. To study the events of these eight days as deeply as they deserve would take a very long time. John, in his gospel, spends many, many chapters just talking about the very night that Jesus was arrested. That one night, he spends several chapters discussing it. Matthew, Mark, and Luke join him in spending a lot of time talking about these eight days. And if we were to do it justice, we would probably need several months just on this one week of Jesus' life, to teach all the lessons and pull all the little threads that are in the story. Not today, but perhaps this upcoming year or very soon. For today, I would like for us to focus on just one important theme in all of that narrative. There's so much to discuss. We'll get to the cross Friday, the resurrection Sunday, all the events that lead up to it, we need months for. I'm gonna pick one theme, and it's really a thread you ever have a thread that you can pick at and you keep pulling it? There's a thread that weaves all the way through Holy Week that maybe we overlook sometimes. Maybe we don't. But I want to tug on that thread today and make an observation that will hopefully be applicable to how we live our lives today as people of faith as we walk into this special week. It begins with the triumphant entry of Jesus as he walks into Jerusalem. He's riding on a colt entering the city. People are singing his praises. They're laying palm branches down in front of him. They're laying their garments in front of him and they're crying out praises to his name. And that's why we call it Palm Sunday. We usually read the story of Palm Sunday on this day, but we're not gonna read those verses today. Instead, what I do want to do today is just remind you of a couple of the dynamics that are going on here. First of all, Jesus is entering Jerusalem in uh, the, major, the major festival. There were three of the Jewish festivals that were the most significant or major festivals that they celebrated, where they would come from all the countries. They lived in many countries. They were scattered in many countries. But they would come into the city of Jerusalem to the temple for festivals. And there were three major festivals that would bring them there. And the biggest one was Passover. And the second biggest one was, uh, was Pentecost, and the third one was Sukkot. And that was later in the year. But these first two were close together within weeks apart. And so Passover was the big one. And people would pack out for this week, and really for the weeks that followed into Pentecost, they would pack out the city of Jerusalem. And it was a great time for the city to thrive as a business because you would fill all the lodging. And you would, you would not only fill all the lodging, but you would also... Um, you would fill all the, you would sell food like crazy and you would sell goods and merchandise. 
and necessary sacrifices for the religious customs. It was such a big deal that I compare it a little bit to how we celebrate after Thanksgiving and into Christmas, you know, Black Friday to Christmas. Retail stores say it's the most profitable part of the year for them economically in, in, our, in the world. Like they make all their profits in that one month. Well, the commerce of Jerusalem would be heavily successful on this one time of the year. The, all three festivals, but especially Passover, and especially Passover to Pentecost. So people are pouring into the city from all over the place, and Jesus arrives. Many of the people who are coming to the city lived in the other countries that he had traveled to and visited, where he had done miracles, where he had healed the sick, where he had raised the dead, where he had fed the hungry, where he had taught the people. And as he helped people, they loved him. And that's why they're singing praises to his name. That's why they're laying down the palm branches or their garments. And that's why this moment is happening. And if you understand the dynamic of the heart of Jesus, the people loved him, but not that all the people loved him. The religious, the strongly religious crowd did not love Jesus. He wasn't doing it right. You ever want to see someone get frustrated in life? It's religious people getting frustrated at other people who aren't doing it right. That's not how we do it, you know? We don't do it that way. This is not how we do the thing, the God thing. It's frustrating to them, you know, because th this is how I believe we're supposed to do it. And, and so they were mad at Jesus because he didn't play in their sandbox. He didn't do it their way. He ministered to people they didn't like. He, he rubbed elbows with them. But, but on the other hand, what's interesting is that people who were nothing like Jesus liked Jesus. And Jesus liked people who were nothing like him. Isn't that interesting? And they were the focus of his ministry. He ate with them. He served them. He taught them. But again, the religious system, they weren't so much a big fan. The religious system was consumed by what we would call today nationalism. And I'll put a statement on the screen so I can kind of unpack the nature of the religious crowd of Jesus' day. And that is this, that Jesus lived in a time when religious people were arrogant and angry over politics and against culture. That's the time in which Jesus lived. Does it sound familiar to any of us? I don't know if that's just a little... Uh, it, this is when Jesus lived. He, he lived in a time when there were just people, when I say arrogant, a, a term that you would use in church world would be self-righteous. Self-righteous. We are, we are better than others because, you know, we do the God thing the right way and they don't, and so we're better. Better than people who don't follow God or better than people who follow God in a less good way. Self-righteous. Arrogant. It has a turnoff to everybody else, right? And angry. Angry at people. In fact, oftentimes, they would classify everybody who was not them under a couple different labels. They would call everybody else tax collectors and sinners. Two labels. And the word tax collectors did not just refer to people who were tax collectors. It referred to people who were on the wrong side of their political nationalism. Because to them, the biggest issue that amongst the religious people of that day was not reaching the world with God's love. Uh-uh. The biggest issue of that day was getting Rome overthrown and kicked out of their country so they could have their country back the way they wanted it. And so the tax collectors were, were not just the people who collected, but the people who worked in the system of their own people of their nation who supported the political framework of Roman control, who helped facilitate that system. And they're like, you're part of the problem. So they called them a label. And then the other people they called sinners, that was anybody else who just didn't worship God the right way. So those two groups of people were just bad. 
And they were angry all the time and arrogant. And people who were on the outside were welcome to come in and become good religious people. They just had to jump through all the hoops. Got to jump through all the hoops to, to fit in, you know. If you come God the right way and look more like us and believe more like us and politic more like us, then you can be one of us. But if not, we'll just sit back here, feel better about ourselves and pray for revival. Sounds familiar? And so it's so disconnected from the world that God sent them, put them into with his word that when God himself shows up, when Jesus shows up, when God in a bod shows up, they're like, oh, who's this guy? That's not how we do it. Well, if he, if he really is the Messiah, he'll do what we want him to do. He'll kick out Rome. See, to them, God's goodness was shown by making Israel great again, if I can say it that way. It, to them, God's goodness in following God meant living for their nation being the way they wanted it to look. Even as they neglected the people around them who most needed hope in God because those people were just sinners anyhow. And they're free to come back if they want to. We'll tell them how. They were so obsessed. It's hard to be obsessed with many things. It's hard to be caught up in what God's doing in your life and, and be so grateful and joyful and peaceful in him and, and passing his love on and serving others while at the same time being embroiled in making this kingdom here what I want it to be or else. And so they had people at arm's length. And people could come to them. But who wants to come and join that kind of a religious group? Who on the outside says, oh, that's God? You're the God people? So to be... To get to God, i got to get with you. It's not a very good commercial because you're all arrogant and you're all angry and you're all snarky and you're all insulting and you're all better than. I don't need that. No, that's okay. We don't care because we're going to fix this place. We're going to fix this place. This was the tension that Jesus was walking into. The people were putting their palm riches down. They're singing his name. The religious people are like, tell them to stop praising you. We're here to worship God. And he goes, hello, I'm here. They're like, yeah, but they should stop. And he's like, if they can't stop, because this is ordained. And so we know the story, but I want to um, pull out something that we don't always overlook, we often overlook. As he rides into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, Luke records a pause in the journey that I don't want you to miss. In Luke 19 and verse 41, it says this, but as Jesus came closer to Jerusalem, and saw the city ahead. He began to weep. And you're like, why would he weep? Like, I mean, they're praising his name, laying palm branches down. This is the big festival of the Passover. Why would he weep? But he wept. And if you want to know why, just keep reading. Verse 42, he said, How I wish today that you of all people would understand the way to peace. But now it's too late, and peace is hidden from your eyes. Oh, we know about peace. We're fighting for peace. We'll kill for peace. We know. No, 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 no. The prince of peace is right here. If only you knew the way to peace, but you just can't see it. It's right there, and you just can't see me. And he goes on in verse 43. He says, before long, don't miss this now. This is a prophecy. This is this is Jesus prophesying things that would seem so strange at the time, but let's read them anyhow. He says, before long, your enemies will build ramparts against your walls and will encircle you and close you in from every side. They will crush you into the ground. 
and your children with you. Your enemies will not leave a single stone in place because you did not recognize it when God visited you. He didn't say God's going to do this to you because God doesn't like you. That's not what he was saying. He was saying your enemies will do it. The people that you're busy fighting against are going to do this to you one day. And it wasn't necessary, but you couldn't see that because you didn't understand what it was all about when God showed up, when he visited you. And so you kept on doing the thing that you thought was all spiritual and godly and right. And it's going to get you an outcome you don't want. Because when God showed up to show you a different way, that was so unimportant. What about this? And Jesus said, what can I do? And he wept. He wept. On Palm Sunday, if you didn't know that, you know it now, Jesus wept. Well, as Jesus arrives in the city, he turns up the temperature. I mean, he turns up the temperature, and he does it for a reason. He knows that he came that week to die. If you want to understand why he came to die, I told you the city is packed out for the Passover festival. All people who he had been ministering to, the people, he was a fan. He, I mean, he was a, a celebrity figure at that point. And he knew that he had done all that attention gathering through his miracles so that when they all come to the Passover feast and the city is packed full of people, there'd be lots of witnesses to his crucifixion and his death. And then there'd be a lot of witnesses to his resurrection. And he knew that this was the big week to make the splash that would change the world. And boy, hasn't it changed the world? If you doubt how much it changed the world, here we are 2,000 years later today still praising and worshiping his name in Cedar Lake, Indiana on Sunday morning. So he's doing it this week, but in order to get crucified, it's not gonna be the people who are laying the palm branches down. They're not gonna be the ones that are ready to kill him. He had to stir up the ones who hated him already. So he pushes the buttons of the religious leaders all week long. He walks into the temple the first day, the next, day, next morning, and he tosses over their money-changing tables where they sold animal sacrifices. And he grabs a whip and he drives them out of the temple. You see, the people would come to the temple because it was a necessary part of their religious customs. This was to bring animal sacrifices, like lamb or a goat, or if you're really poor, a couple turtle doves. It's part of their, of their, of their system of worship that they had inherited. And, and the problem was that was how they're supposed to build this bridge back to God because of, of all the sins and all that kind of stuff. And so because of that, um, people who live there said, well, folks are coming far away or from close who don't have livestock or perhaps they can't travel with livestock, so we'll sell them to them at an inflated price. We'll, we'll make money off of their ability to get right with God. And Jesus walks through and just tosses that stuff over and says, my house will be called a house of prayer. You've turned it into a den of thieves. You have taken what is about people connecting in relationship with God and you've turned it into something to line your pockets. And he's mad. Well, he doesn't stop there. He's pushing, he's poking the bear. He's instigating his enemies to where they're, to where they're willing to say, let's kill him. And he doesn't waste any time. He calls them, you want a, a spicy chapter to read? Read Matthew 23. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees and religious leaders, you hypocrites. You're like dead man's bones in a pretty casket. I mean, he goes on and on and on. I don't have the, the, the words for it without reading the passage. Matthew 23, you're welcome. He goes on and turns up the temperature and instigates his haters. And they finally send people, they eventually conspire with Judas to, to betray him. They want to arrest him. They, they, they need to do it privately because the crowd loves him, but maybe they could get the crowd turned against him. So they put a plan into place, and we find it in Luke 20, verse 20. It says, watching for their opportunity, the leaders sent spies pretending to be honest men. 
they tried to get Jesus to say something that could be reported to the Roman governor so that he would arrest Jesus. In other words, they didn't like Rome. These are the religious people whose, you couldn't tell where their religion stopped and their nationalism started. They wanted Rome out of there. But they're glad to use their enemy to take care of their other enemy. If we can get Rome to arrest Jesus, we get rid of Jesus, and Rome will be very unpopular because Jesus is popular. We can maybe make our case to get rid of Rome. So they're going to try to get Rome to take Jesus. They're trying to stir the pot and play the game because that's what they did. So they come trying to trap him up in something he would say they could get him in trouble with Roman authorities. Verse 21, teacher, they said, we know that you speak the truth. You speak and teach what is right. And you are not influenced by what others think. You teach the way of God truthfully. They're buttering him up. Beware the butter-uppers. You know, hey, we should all be complimentary. We should all be kind. But when people lay it on too thick, I, I've been doing this a long time. I learned a long time ago. Some people who most have an agenda are most good at buttering your bread before they, before they try to steer the boat, you know? So you get a little skeptical. But anyhow, um, oh, you're the best, Jesus. You're amazing. You're amazing. Verse 22, now tell us, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? This was the big catching question because that was the big issue. If you say, no, we shouldn't pay taxes to Caesar, oh, we're going to go tell Pilate, the Roman governor, that this celebrity person with a huge following is teaching to not pay taxes and he'll have you come and be arrested. And you'll be out of our hair. Woo! But if, we, but if you say, oh, no, you should pay taxes to Caesar, you'll lose the crowd because everyone's tired of it. So go ahead, answer the question. The funny part was, every one of those religious leaders who asked them the question, their answer would be, we should not pay taxes. That was their whole mission, get Rome out of there. But they weren't going to report themselves, of course. They were just stirring up the pots privately. But you know what they were doing here? It's so easy to see what they were doing here. They were getting Jesus, they were bringing a hot-button issue to Jesus and saying, weigh, on on this, weigh in on this hot-button issue. What are you going to say about that? Knowing that there's no way to win a topic like that. You lose this side or you lose that side. They're putting them in a spot. What's your answer? And Jesus is pretty smart, I think. So he handles it pretty well. Verse 23, he saw through their trickery and he said, show me a Roman coin. I love this. Show me a Roman coin. Um, whose picture and title are stamped on that Roman coin? Caesar's, they replied. Hmm. He said, well then, Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. And give to God what belongs to God. He says, y'all worried about the, the monetary system and who's in control and who's printing the money. Empires have come and gone in your history before then. Babylon and Persia and Greece and now the Rome. And you're all worried about which, you're making Roman money, you're spending Roman money, you're doing business with Roman money, but you don't want to pay taxes to Rome. It's their money, it's their system. God does not need their system. God doesn't need their money. So, I don't care. Give Caesar what, it's his stuff. Give it, give it to him what he asks. It belongs to him. But give God. Give God what belongs to him. And in saying so, he didn't deny taxation so they couldn't turn him over to Pilate. But at the same time, he answered so well that the people who were there for Holy Week are like, ooh, that's good. And the people who wanted to get him trapped up, who were all about the hot button issue and who were, were all political, had nothing to say but walk away. And that's why they conspired with Judas to have him arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. Well, I'm not going to keep going here. That very same evening, 
before they left, this is a big deal, before they left Jerusalem, the disciples and Jesus walk outside and around the temple. And the temple was opulent. The temple was magnificent. It was, I mean, that's what they put all their money into. It was a gorgeous building of religious impression. And the disciples are impressed. And so they said in Luke 21, 5, some of the disciples began to talk about the majestic stonework of the temple and the memorial decorations on the walls. But Jesus said, and don't miss it, Jesus said, the time is coming when all these things will be completely demolished. What? What? Yep, not one stone will be left on top of another. That The disciples were with Jesus when he rode in on Palm Sunday. They saw him weep. And if his tears caught their attention, they heard him say something very similar to this about the city of Jerusalem when he arrived. We read that earlier, right? Now he's sitting outside the temple saying something very similar about the temple. It's going to be completely demolished one day. Not one stone will be left on top of another. It's a jarring thing to hear Jesus predict. So they leave the city. They head over to the Mount of Olives. And on the Mount of Olives, they ask him about that topic. They're like, what is going to happen? What's happening in the future? Can you tell us what's coming? And Jesus goes into this long talk that we call the Olivet Discourse, if you've ever heard that term in church. It's a long talk on the Mount of Olives where he talks about the future. Some of it's the distant, distant future. That hasn't even happened yet to this day, like apocalyptic stuff. But some of what he talks about is the closer future within so many years or decades from them that's already happened by now. And as he talks about these things, they're all listening with wide eyes and ears perked up as he describes these things he's been saying that are so intense. And I won't read the whole Olivet Discourse to you, but I want you to notice the theme in Luke 21, 20. Jesus says, and when you see Jerusalem, don't miss it, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, picture the imagery. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then you will know the time of its destruction has arrived. Okay? See the imagery. And then he adds this in verse 21. He says, then those in Judea must flee to the hills. That's the greater other, the countryside around. Go to the hills. Get out of there. Those in Jerusalem, in the city, must get out. If at all possible, get out. And those out in the country should not return to the city. Don't, don't, don't even come here. Just stay away. Just go. And he goes on and continues his discourse. What strong, these are strong prophecies that he's making. Well, next day he has his last supper with his disciples in the upper room, establishes the Lord's Supper, communion. That night they go to the Garden of Gethsemane. Judas betrays him. The religious leaders arrest him. He's taken back to their headquarters where they accuse him, put him on trial, condemn him, beat him around. That next morning they take him to Pilate, the Roman governor, because their, their festival week was there. They didn't want to dirty their hands with an execution. So they said, we found this man guilty, execute him for us. And Pilate tries to get out of it, but they, they kind of threaten him with, this is an insurrectionist, and so they won't let him. So Pilate takes him and has him beaten, with a, a brutally beaten, terribly beaten. And then after he's beaten and bloodied uh, with a cat of nine tails, Pilate says, uh, tries to get him released again. They say, crucify him, and they have Jesus hauled away to be crucified. We'll discuss the crucifixion this week on Good Friday. But 
I want you to see something that happens on the way to the cross that fits the thread that we're pulling on today. Luke 23, 26 says this. As they led Jesus away, a man named Simon, who was from Cyrene, happened to be coming in from the countryside. The soldiers seized him and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large crowd trailed behind, including many grief-stricken women. Why are these people traveling behind Jesus? They're upset. They loved him. They saw the things he did. And these women especially, they were just so sad to see him beaten to a pulp. And now having a cross taken, they've not only been beaten terribly, and it's sad, but he's about to die the most gruesome form of execution that Rome had reserved for its worst people and die and suffer on a cross. And as they're watching him be hauled away in that condition, they're following behind, weeping. They're grief-stricken. And look what Jesus says in verse 28. But Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, don't weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. Wait, wait, for myself? I'm doing fine. Weep for yourselves and weep for your children. For the days are coming when they will say, fortunate indeed are the women who have no children, who are childless. The wombs that have not borne a child and the breasts that have never nursed. People will beg the mountains fall on us and plead with the hills bury us. For if these things are done when the tree is green, what will happen when it's dry? So in other words, if God is here and you're seeing this kind of, a, of an action taken, what happens when I'm not here walking around anymore? Watch out. Watch out. Pray for you. Don't wait for me. Wait for yourself and for your kids. It's very specific. Well, Jesus was taken to the cross he was crucified. They took him down and buried him. And on the third day, he rose again, seen by at least five people that day, and over hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people over the next 40 days to where Jerusalem, full of people for the festival, believed on him and exploded into faith on Pentecost Sunday, and the early church was established. And the people who wanted Jesus killed are now like, oh my, He's gone, we got rid of him, but now his followers are saying he's alive. They've seen him and, now he's, and he's God of all and there's life after death. And, the, and his, the movement spread. And they persecuted the movement. They killed some of the leaders of the movement like they killed Jesus. They chased the believers to other, out, of the, out of the city and other places all over the country and all over the surrounding countries around. And then they got back to business as usual. Business as usual meant a form of religion that kept the tax collectors and sinners at arm's length they had their system that was angry and caught up in their nationalism and pushing against this Jesus talk that they tried to get rid of and going on their business like always. And, and everything was fine for a few years and even a few decades until the year 66 AD. In 66 AD, the Jewish people had enough of Roman control in their region and they revolted. A lot of things were building the tension was high, um, you know, how things go when everyone's stirred up politically. This side raises the temperature, so that side raises the temperature, and these people did this. And at one point, they didn't pay some taxes, so Rome sends people to the temple to take some of their precious jewelry from the temple to pay taxes they refused to pay, and they hung those Roman people and others like them. Yikes, lynched them. So the Romans came back and hung, hung, lynched a bunch of their leaders and with power. And that led to people in the country getting mad because Rome was picking on us. And then they had a revolt and they were tired of the taxes, were tired of Rome, were tired, and they revolted. And Jerusalem and then all of Judea cast out Rome 
and gained their independence in AD 66. They were so happy. Everything was good. They got what they always wanted, what the centerpiece of what they thought was. That's what God's about. What good is God if it's some kind of in the sky, in the sky home someday and with me now, whatever. It's about making my world the way I want it, and they got the world they wanted in AD 66. But in the next year, AD 67, Emperor Nero sends his general Vespasian with armies to reconquer Judea. And they begin to conquer all the cities all over Judea, saving Jerusalem for last. And in, in 69 AD, he stops because Nero dies. And Vespasian, the general, is called back to Rome to become the new emperor of Rome. But the following year, he sends his son, Titus, to continue his siege of Judea and specifically of Jerusalem. General Titus comes in the year A.D. 70 to Jerusalem, about 30 to 35 years after Jesus had made those prophecies. He shows up in Jerusalem with the Roman Empire. And guess when he shows up? Holy Week. He shows up right before Passover, like we're celebrating this week, right before Jesus rode in on the colt on Palm Sunday 30-some years earlier. He shows up before Holy Week and he surrounds the city with his army. And people from everywhere, Jews from all this, are pouring into Jerusalem for their annual Passover feast. And as they get close, they realize Roman soldiers are surrounding the city. What do we do? And General Titus told his soldiers, let them in. Anyone wants to come, let them in. Encourage them to go in. Escort them in. Let them go. When everyone poured into the city, he said, don't let anyone out. And he filled the city to delete the food supply and pack it out. And he surrounded the city and kept it locked. And within three weeks, they tore down the third wall on the west side. And the, much of the north wall was breached on the north, uh, uh, another side. And the only wall that was really left surrounding the city was the city itself and the temple, the proper, the main wall. And it was a tough, tough nut to crack. And for several months, a war was waged. And, and in the city of Jerusalem, there were people who were, who were fighting with each other, saying, we need to make peace with Rome. This has gone too far. And others were saying, no, we're going to fight to the death. And this was back and forth. They got to the point where people in Jerusalem were arguing about what to do with Rome outside the walls, killing each other, literally. In fact, one, uh, some zealots got together and burned the food supply in the city to try and force the people who were trying to take it easy to fight with them, to fight alongside of them against Rome. Which Then it, the siege went on. And then cannibalism was happening, and, and, and it was insane. And several months was go, went by, and Rome tried to breach the walls, and they, when they said that they sent an emissary one time, they killed the emissary trying to, make, trying to negotiate. They almost killed General Titus once. It was bloody. They finally broke through the wall. They burned a bunch of Romans that got trapped in the wall and killed them in a fire on, that they set around them. But they finally got through the walls and into the city. And in the fall, September, October range of AD 70, they breached Jerusalem. And they were so angry. They were so angry at the opposition. They were so angry at the fight and the stubborn, ugly, bloody battle and the rebellion of the Jewish people in the city that they went and slaughtered everyone. They walked through and killed and massacred everyone in front of them, men, women, and children. Cut open women who were pregnant, just cut them open. Walking upon their bodies as they went through the city and crushing behind them. To the last fortified people were in front of the temple trying to guard their, their temple. 
But by this time, fire air has been shot and the wall was on fire. The temple had caught on fire much, several times. A lot of it was already burned down before this point because of the flames. But they, just, they, they came to the temple last of all to finish the job and they killed the last of the people. Tore the temple wall down and the city wall down, stone by stone, shoving them down the back of the hill that the city was built upon into the valley below. Josephus, who was in the city and was part of the thing that got smuggled out, it's a long story, was there trying to negotiate with Rome as a Jewish uh, ancient person. He writes that a million Jews were killed in that whole campaign. Other historians have pushed against that number, understandably so, because they're like, there's the impossible. There was only a half a million Jews living in the entirety of the Judean area, so how could you kill a million in, in the Jerusalem campaign? And that's a good point. Although, Josephus' argument for, is that this was Passover. People were pouring into the city from all surrounding countrysides, filling it up for the Holy Day. Who knows what the number was? But they only took about 97,000 people alive. They uh, took, if you were older than 17, and you were allowed to live, which is very few, they put them as gladiators in the Colosseums to fight to their death for entertainment. 16 and under, they sold them in slavery to people's houses to be trafficked in slaves the rest of their life. And Judean worship in the temple, as we ever knew it, was never the same since to this day, as far as the temple worship. But Judaism as a religion got decimated that day, and the Sanhedrin and the Sadducees were never recovered. It's a sad story. And it's a long story. We can get into it all. But what I want to point out today is that it was such an amazing thing that Jesus said this would happen in several different conversation points way before it happened. It's like he said, you read the verses with me. He said so many things that proved to be true. Just a few decades later, you're like, how did he know that? Well, we know how he knew that. He was God. But, but still, the people who were around him had to be astounded in hindsight. If, if you, I don't care, you know, whatever your faith journey looks like today, we can all step back and be impressed with the remarkable accuracy that Jesus historically depicted this event way before it happened. And Why? Why, when Jesus was there trying to warn them of what God's heart was really about, which was not what they were all about. They had their own religion and their own priorities, what they thought religious was, what it was supposed to be. And Jesus tried to tell them, this is not what God's about. But they couldn't hear it. Listen, they were convinced that if the Messiah, who Jesus claimed to be the Messiah, if the Messiah did what they wanted him to do, then it would take care of their Rome problem. That's what the Messiah was going to do. Come in there and give them, you know, national deliverance and, and, and make, you know, fix Israel. They were convinced that's what a Messiah is supposed to be. And if Jesus would do what they wanted him to do, it would fix their Rome problem. But Jesus knew that if they would do what he said to do, if they would see his words and his heart to believe on God and follow God and, and believe in his love and, and show to others his love and serve one another like he served us and love one another and just follow him, that would take care of their Rome problem. Not because it would make Rome go away. It just wouldn't matter. It doesn't matter who's in power. It doesn't matter who's in control. It doesn't matter which corrupt system is here now, which corrupt system is there. It doesn't matter. If they would have gotten Jesus' heart, they'd have let all that angst go and spent their time in relationship with God and reaching to the people far from God instead of huddling back and feeling better and being angry. 
And the crazy part is, they missed it. And in the end, the things that they cared about more, they lost anyway. Listen, please don't miss this. The things you fight for while missing the heart of God, you will lose anyway because you miss the heart of God. The things, the things that I miss, the things that I fight for while missing the heart of God, the things that we fight for while missing the heart of God, we will lose anyway if we miss the heart of God. If we have that wrong idol in its place and we pursue it, that wrong passion, that wrong intensity, that wrong focal point, lose it anyhow. they lost it anyhow. It took a little longer. What was the point? See, yeah, but that's, I'm, that's different. That was them. I, I'm, a, I'm a God-fearing person. Well, they were religious people. They were God-fearing. They knew the scriptures. The people we're talking about in the story today, they knew the scriptures. They could memorize them, quote them better than anybody else. It was a badge of pride. So you see, you can be a religious person and miss the heart of God. Yep. You can. In fact, let me go a step further. You can be a religious person and keep other people from seeing the heart of God. If we're not careful, we'll have such an arm's length with people around us who need so much to see God that we're so much saying, you want to come our way? We know where to find us, Dad. And they're like, why would I want to come your way? You look down on us. We know how you feel about us. Because you know what a lot of religious people do? We sit in our holy huddle praying for revival and feeling better than Angry about culture, angry at culture for how people live, mad at this person, mad at lifestyles, mad at culture, mad at politics. We post about these things on our social media. We rant about them to our, our people. Everyone's like, oh, wow, that's what being a Jesus follower looks like? We don't like you. I'm going to insult you. I'm going to insult your lifestyle. I'm going to insult your politics. I'm going to insult your political candidates and mock them and mock you for supporting them because you're an idiot. How's that zinger? Woo! And I'm going to insult how you live your life. I'm going to be all these things because I'm an angry Christian. That makes me feel good about myself. And people are like, I don't want any part of that. Well, that's their problem. We just need to pray for revival. Pray for revival. What's wrong with the world, God? It's not us. You can be a religious person and miss the heart of God and not see the heart of God. You can be a religious person and keep others from seeing the heart of God because where else are they going to find it at other than the crowd who claims him? That is why Jesus, 30-some years before they surrounded the city of Jerusalem on Holy Week and started that campaign, Jesus rode in on Palm Sunday, as we call it today, and saw that same city of Jerusalem not just through what was going to happen that day or that week where he would be crucified and rise again, but to see what would happen many years later. And in Luke 19, 41, let's go there again. As he came closer to Jerusalem and saw the city ahead, he began to weep. He said, How I wish today that you of all people would understand the way of peace, the way to peace. But now, it's too late. Peace is hidden from your eyes. Before long, your enemies will build ramparts against your walls and encircle you and close in on you from every side. They will crush you into the ground, your children with you. Your enemies will not leave a single stone in place because you did not recognize it when God visited you. And God's not doing that to you. You're going to do it to yourself. You're going to, you're going to fight the wrong battles. And you're going to come out 
on the wrong end of the wrong cause. And it could have been prevented because I showed up to tell you what really matters. And all you did was mock me and say, that's not what following God's, that's not how you do it, and kill me. That's fine, that's what I'm here for, I'm here to die, I'm here to atone for sins, but you missed the heart of God. They were so obsessed, listen, they were so obsessed with the kingdom they wanted that they did not recognize the king when he showed up. And, and I'm not pointing fingers. If you think this is about those people 2,000 years ago, I'm talking about us today, folks. Listen, this is where we need to ask ourselves as we enter Holy Week, that we don't have the trappings of religion, a form of godliness, but deny the power thereof. We don't walk into this week and, and have a token moment about the cross and the resurrection and go back to our angry Christian lives, cut off from the people we're supposed to be reaching with the gospel, saying, well, they know where to find us, instead of going out there and loving and serving and being humble and gracious and kind and, and, and showing Jesus to people. Here's the thing. Too often we pray, God, keep our kingdom going. Or get our kingdom going again, or however you want to word it. God, keep our kingdom going. Whatever that means. My personal kingdom, my nation's kingdom, whatever it may be. Keep our kingdom going. Instead, what we should be praying is, God, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, God, let your kingdom come and start with me. Start with me. Help me to not be so wrapped up and worked up by all the things that are really stupid and people have been worked up and fussing about for generations before and generations after if we live that long. Help me to see that I have a God who loves me, who did all that he could do to show me on the cross how much he loved me this much to bear my sins, to show how hard forgiveness is and yet how much you did it because you want us back more than you want us to pay. So you paid. You rose again to show me that death is not the end and life goes on and I can have eternal life through your love and I want to enter that relationship with you now and not wait someday to have eternal life but to have eternal life in me now through faith in you. And I want to live in that love and build my life upon that good foundation that amazing grace so that I can turn around and show other people how much I care about them and my heart for them so that they can see through me that you love them and see your heart for them. God, build your kingdom here. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done. Begin with me. Well, if you prayed that prayer, I don't know, it might be a real revival. The church might look like something worth coming to. It might actually look like good news again, right? That might, be, that might change everything. It's got to start here. Let's pray.